After reciting the Tashahud, Ta'awuz, and Surah Al-Fatiha, Hazrat Kharib al-Masih V, Ayyadullah Ta'ala ibn Salaziz stated, The name of the Sahabi who will be mentioned today is Hazrat Abu Huzaifa bin Utbah. His title was Abu Huzaifa. The names Hushaym, Hashim, Qais, Hisl, Isl, and Miqsam are also attributed to him. His mother was known by the title Ummi Safwan and her name was Fatima bin Safwan. He had a tall stature and a beautiful countenance. He had accepted Islam before the Holy Prophet went to Darul Arkham. He was among those who were the first to accept the Holy Prophet While commenting on this, Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmed Sahib has written that Abu Huzaifa bin Utbah was from the Banu Umayyah. His father, Utbah bin Rabia, was among the chieftains of Quraysh. Abu Huzaifa was martyred in the Battle of Yamama which was fought against Musalma Qazab during the caliphate of Hazrat Abu Bakr anhu. Hazrat Abu Huzaifa participated in both the migrations to Abyssinia while his wife Hazrat Sahla bint Suhail also migrated with him. I have already given an account of the migration to Abyssinia while mentioning other companions as to how and why it took place. I will mention it briefly here.
I will present a summary or some selected and abridged parts of what Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmed Sahib has taken from different books of history and from the Ahadith. He writes, When the suffering of the Muslims had reached its limit and the Quraysh continued to aggravate the affliction of the Muslims, the Holy Prophet ﷺ instructed Muslims to migrate to Abyssinia and said, The king of Abyssinia is just and equitable. None are subjected to oppression under his rule. During that era, a strong Christian sovereignty was established in Abyssinia, and the king was referred to as the Negus. Arabia had business relations with Abyssinia. During that time, when they migrated, the personal name of the Negus was Ashama, who was a just, intelligent and powerful king. In any case, when the pains of the Muslims reached their limits, the Holy Prophet ﷺ instructed that those who could afford should migrate to Abyssinia. Therefore, upon the instruction of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, in the month of Rajab 5 Nabwi, eleven men and four women migrated to Abyssinia. The well-known names among them were as follows. Hazrat Uthman bin Affan and his wife Ruqayya, the daughter of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, Abdul Rahman bin Auf, Zubair bin Alawam, Abu Hudayfa bin Utbah, the account of whom I am currently narrating. He was also part of this first group. Usman bin Maz'um, Mus'ab bin Umair, Abu Salma bin Abdul Asad, and his wife, Umm Salama. Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmed Sahib writes, It is very strange that a majority of these pioneer immigrants were those who belonged to powerful tribes of the Quraysh, and the weaker were few and far between. This illustrates two things. Firstly, even those who belonged to the powerful tribes of the Quraysh were not safe from the cruelties of the Quraysh. Secondly, weak people such as slaves, etc., at that time were in such a grave state of weakness and misery that they were not even able to migrate. Travelling south, when the immigrants reached Shaiba, which was a seaport in Arabia at that time, by the grace of Allah, they found a trade ship which was just ready to leave for Abyssinia, and thus all of them boarded in security. Upon reaching Abyssinia, the Muslims found a life of great peace and protection from the cruelties of the Quraysh after much difficulty and prayers. However, as some historians have mentioned, it had not been long since the immigrants had migrated to Abyssinia when a wandering rumour reached them that all of the Quraysh had accepted Islam and Makkah was now a place of complete peace and security. The result of this news was that most immigrants returned immediately. 
Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmed Sahib has shed some light of this rumor as to how and why it spread. <coughs> Having consulted various books of history, he writes, In actuality, although this was a completely false and unsubstantiated rumor, which was probably spread in order to lure the immigrants to Abyssinia back and to put them in difficulty. As a matter of fact, on closer investigation, this rumor and the tale of the immigrants' return in itself seems to be baseless. Nonetheless, if it is taken as true, the incident mentioned in various ahadith could be hidden beneath the surface. As mentioned in Bukhari, once the Holy Prophet recited verses of Surah An-Najm in the courtyard of the Kaaba. At that time, many a chieftain of the infidels were also present along with the Muslims. When the Holy Prophet ﷺ completed the chapter, he fell into prostration upon completing Surah An-Najm. And with him, all the Muslims and the infidels fell into prostration as well. The reason behind the prostration of the disbelievers has not been mentioned in a hadith. But it seems that apparently the Holy Prophet ﷺ recited the verses of God in such a manner as touched the chords of the heart. Those verses were such as particularly illustrated the unity of God, His power and majesty in an extremely eloquent and prespicious manner, and His favours were reminded of. Then, the Quraysh were warned in a very majestic and awe-inspiring manner that in case they did not refrain from their evil doings, they would meet the same end as past nations because they rejected the Messenger of God. Then, at the conclusion of these verses, it was ordered that come and prostrate before Allah. After the recitation of these verses, the Holy Prophet ﷺ and all the Muslims fell into prostration at once. And as a result, these words and this sight had such a miraculous effect on the Quraysh, as they also fell into prostration involuntarily. Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmed Sahib writes, This should not be surprising, for under such circumstances as have been mentioned above, the human heart at times falls in awe and powerlessly commits such a deed as is against its actual principles and religion. Therefore, at times we have witnessed that during a severe and sudden affliction, even an atheist cries out, O God, O God, or O Ram, O Ram. The Quraysh were not even atheists, and they actually believed in the being of God, although they associated the idols with him. We observe this even today, that when speaking to some atheists, they are asked if the name of God came to their minds or at their tongues when they were afflicted with some sudden affliction. They concede that this was indeed the case. Thus, this was due to the effect of the recitation of that surah, the words of the surah and the action of the Muslims 
that the chieftains of the disbelievers also fell into prostration along with everyone else. He further writes, Hence, after the recitation of this majestic word, full of awe, the community of Muslims all at once fell into prostration. It had such a miraculous effect that the Quraysh powerlessly fell into prostration as well. However, such an influence is usually temporary, and man quickly returns to his original state. As such, same was the case here, for when the Quraysh rose from prostration, they remained the very same idolaters they were before. In any case, this occurrence is such as is substantiated by authentic ahadith. Hence, if the news of the return of the immigrants to Abyssinia is in fact true, it seems that the Quraysh, who were ever longing to have the immigrants of Abyssinia return, probably utilized this action to spread the rumor that the Quraysh of Makkah had become Muslim and that Makkah was now completely safe for Muslims. When this rumor reached the immigrants of Abyssinia, they were naturally delighted to hear it and in the fervor of their delight, they quickly returned. When they were near Makkah, they were enlightened of the actual matter at hand, upon which some secretly and others under the protection of a powerful and influential chieftain of the Quraysh entered Makkah, while others set back again. Therefore, if there was any truth in the rumor that the Quraysh became Muslim, it was merely confined to the incident of the prostration upon the recitation of Surah An-Najm, and Allah knows best. In any case, if the immigrants of Abyssinia did in fact return, a majority of them set back again. Moreover, since the Quraysh continued to progress in their affliction of suffering, and their tyrannies were increasing day by day. Other Muslims, upon the instruction of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, began secret preparations to migrate as well. They began to leave gradually whenever they could find an opportunity to do so. The chain of migration began in such a manner that ultimately the number of immigrants to Abyssinia reached 100, 18 of which were women. Very few Muslims were left in Makkah with the Holy Prophet ﷺ. Some historians have called this migration the second migration to Abyssinia. There was the first migration and then another group of people followed them. Likewise, when afterwards the permission was granted for the migration to Medina, Abu Huzaifa and Hazrat Salim, who was his freed slave, both migrated to Medina. They first migrated to Abyssinia. They also returned during the same period. Their second migration was towards Medina, where both of them stayed at the house of Hazrat Abad bin Bishr. The Holy Prophet formed a bond of brotherhood between Hazrat Abu Huzaifa and Hazrat Abad bin Bishr. Hazrat Abu Huzaifa also participated in the expedition of Hazrat Abdullah bin Jahash.
I will present the details and background to the expedition of Abdullah bin Jahash, as mentioned in Sayyid Khatman Nabiyyin. A chieftain of Mecca named Quds bin Jabir bin Fihri, very cunningly along with the company of the Quraysh, suddenly raided a pasture of Medina, which was situated only three miles from the city and fled with camels, etc., belonging to the Muslims. As soon as the Holy Prophet ﷺ received news of this, he appointed Zayd bin Harsa as the emir in his absence and set out in pursuit along with a group of companions. The Holy Prophet pursued him until he reached Safwan, which is an area close to Badr, but he made good his escape. This Ghazwa is also known as Ghazwa Badr al-Ula. It is further written, This raid of Qurz bin Jabir was not a minor Bedouin act of plunder, i.e. it was not the case that a Bedouin came to loot and committed this theft out of his sheer ignorance. Rather, it is definite that he had set out against the Muslims on behalf of the Quraysh with a particular motive. As a matter of fact, it is very likely that he had specifically come with the intention of inflicting injury upon the very person of the Holy Prophet but upon finding the Muslims vigilant, settled upon the robbery of their camels and ran off. This also demonstrates that the Quraysh of Makkah had planned to raid Medina so as to utterly destroy the Muslims. Naturally, the sudden attack of Qurz bin Jabir had terrified the Muslims greatly. And since there was a standing threat by the chieftains of Makkah that they would attack Medina and utterly destroy the Muslims, the Muslims were severely apprehensive. Upon observing these very threats, the Holy Prophet ﷺ decided that the movements of the Quraysh should be surveyed from a closer distance in order to decipher their plans and intentions. In order for this, there should be measures in place to observe their activities from close. so that all the necessary intelligence with respect to them may be available on time and Medina was safeguarded from all kinds of sudden attacks. Hence, for this purpose, the Holy Prophet ﷺ assembled a party of eight Muhajireen. As an act of wisdom, the Holy Prophet ﷺ selected such men for this party who were from the various tribes of the Quraysh so that it was easier to obtain intelligence with regards to the hidden conspiracies of the Quraysh. The Holy Prophet appointed his paternal cousin, Abdullah bin Jahash, as the commander of this party. Hosefa bin Utbah was also present in this expedition. 
In order to ensure that the prime mission of this party was kept secret even from the Muslim masses, upon ordering this Syria, the Holy Prophet ﷺ did not even inform the commander of this party as to where he was being sent and for what purpose. Rather, upon their departure, the Holy Prophet ﷺ handed him a sealed letter and said that, explaining the direction of travel, this letter contains necessary instructions for you. When you cover a distance of two days' travel from Medina, open the letter and act in accordance with the stipulated instructions. As such, Abdullah and his companions set out by the command of their master. When they had journeyed a distance of two days from Medina, Abdullah opened the instructions of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, which were as follows. Go forth to the valley of Nakhla between Makkah and Taif and obtain information on the Quraysh and return with news therefrom. Moreover, since an intelligence mission was so close to Makkah was a very delicate task, at the bottom of this letter, the Holy Prophet ﷺ had written that after the objective of this mission became known, if anyone from among his companions was hesitant in accompanying this party, and desired to return, then permission would be granted to do so. Abdullah read out this guidance to his companions, who unanimously affirmed that we happily present ourselves for this service. Then this party proceeded to Nakhla. Saad bin Abi Waqas and Utbah bin Ghazwan lost their camels en route and were separated from the companions. Despite their best efforts, they were unable to relocate their companions. The party was now left with only six people. These six proceeded with the task at hand. This small community reached Nakhla and became engaged in their work i.e. to gain intelligence about the intentions of the disbelievers of Mecca and whether they had any plans to attack Medina. With the thought of concealing their classified mission, some of them shaved their heads so that travellers, etc. would not be alarmed in any way and so that they would consider them as being such people who had come with the intention of Umrah. They shaved their heads so that other people would think that they are travelling to perform Umrah. He then says, However, they had only just arrived when suddenly a small caravan of the Quraysh also happened to arrive, which was travelling from Taif to Makkah, and both parties encountered each other. They realised that this was a group of Muslims and resolved to fight with them. The Muslims consulted one another as to what should be done. The Holy Prophet ﷺ had sent them for the purpose of secretly obtaining intelligence. But on the other hand, war had begun with the Quraysh. Both opponents were before one another, and naturally there was a risk that now, since people from the caravan of the Quraysh had spotted the Muslims, their covert intelligence mission would no longer remain secret.
Another predicament was that some Muslims thought that it was perhaps the last day of Rajab, i.e. a sacred month in which fighting was prohibited as per the ancient Arabian custom. Others thought that Rajab had passed and the month of Shaban had started. In some narrations it has been related that this Surya was dispatched in Jamadi al-Akhir and there was a doubt as to whether this day was of Jamadi or Rajab. However, on the other hand, the valley of Nakhla was situated right on the outskirts of the Haram and it was obvious that if a decision was not made that day, the caravan would have entered the Haram on the following day, the sanctity of which was definite. Hence, taking all of these factors into consideration, these six Muslims eventually decided that the caravan should be attacked and the people of the caravan should either be taken captive or killed. Therefore they launched an attack in the name of Allah and as a result, one man whose name was Amr bin al-Hadrami was killed and two were taken captive. However, the fourth individual escaped and the Muslims were unable to apprehend him. Thus, their decision to capture them or kill them was not successful in its entirety. Thereafter, the Muslims seized the goods of the caravan. Since one man belonging to the Quraysh had escaped and news of this conflict would inevitably reach Makkah quickly, Abdullah bin Jahash and his companions swiftly returned to Makkah with the spoils. Orientalists often raise the allegation that this party was sent with the intention of attacking the caravan, which is absolutely incorrect. The truth of the matter is that when the Holy Prophet found out that the companions had attacked the caravan, he was extremely displeased. As such, it is narrated that when they presented themselves before the Holy Prophet ﷺ and informed him of the entire account, the Holy Prophet ﷺ was extremely displeased and said, I have not given you permission to fight in the sacred month. It is then stated that he refused to accept the spoils of war, saying, I will not accept anything from this. Upon this, Abdullah and his companions felt extreme remorse and shame. Then it is written that they thought that due to their incurring the displeasure of God and His Messenger, they had been ruined. They became extremely worried. Even the other companions reproached them and said, You did that which you had not been ordered, and you fought in the sacred month. although you had not been ordered at all to fight in this campaign. On the other hand, the Quraysh also raised a huge hue and cry that the Muslims had violated the sanctity of the sacred month. Since the person who had been killed, Amr bin al-Hadrami, was a chieftain and was also a confederate of Utbah bin Rabia, a chieftain of Mecca, this occurrence greatly enraged the Quraysh's fire of fury. They began to prepare for an attack upon Medina with even greater zeal and uproar. Nonetheless, owing to this incident, 
there were intense discussions between the Muslims and the disbelievers over the fact that the Muslims had launched an attack in the sacred month. In Sirat Khatman Nabi'een, Hazrat Mirza Bashir Masaib writes, Finally, the following Quranic verse was revealed, which provided a means of relief for the Muslims. Yas'alunaka anil shahr al-harami qitalan fee. Qul qitalun fihi kabir. Wasaddun an sabilillah wa kufrun bihi wal masjid al-haram wa ikhraj ahli minhu akbaru inda Allah wal fitnatu akbaru min al-qatl. وَلَا يَزَالُونَ يُقَاتِلُونَكُمْ حَتَّى يَرُدُّوكُمْ عَنْ دِينِكُمْ إِنْ اسْتَطَاعُوا Meaning, people ask thee about fighting in the sacred month. Tell them, undoubtedly, fighting in the sacred month is a great transgression, but to forcefully hinder men from the religion of God in the sacred month, rather to disbelieve in relation to the sacred month and the sacred mosque, i.e. to violate their sanctity, and then to turn out by coercion the inhabitants of the haram as you are guilty of doing. O ye idolaters, is a greater sin with Allah than fighting in the sacred month. And verily, to persecute in the land during the sacred month is worse than such fighting, which is for the purpose of preventing persecution. O ye Muslims, the state of the disbelievers is such that they have become so blinded in their enmity towards you that they will not cease fighting you at any time and at any place until they turn you back from your faith if they find the power to do so. Therefore, history establishes that the chieftains of the Quraysh would spread their bloody propaganda even in the sacred months. As a matter of fact, they became even more active in their evil designs during these months, taking benefit of the gatherings and journeys which would take place in the sacred months. Furthermore, with great shamelessness, in order to gratify themselves with a false satisfaction, they would rearrange the order of the sacred months, which was known as Nasi. Until the conquest of Mecca, they continued to treat the Muslims in the same way, or rather they transgressed all limits. In fact, Hazrat Mirza Bashir Sahib writes, Later on they crossed all bounds, when during the era of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, despite there being a firm covenant and agreement, the disbelievers of Mecca and their allies took up the sword against an allied tribe of the Muslims in the area of the Haram. Hence, it was only natural for the Muslims to find comfort in this response revealed by God Almighty. But the Quraysh were also brought to level. During this time, two of their men arrived in Medina in order to have their two captives released. These were the two people who were captured by the Muslims. However, until now, Saad bin Abi Waqas and Utbab had not returned. Their camels had become lost and there was no trace of them. On their account, 
the Holy Prophet ﷺ greatly feared that if the Quraysh happened to seize them, they would not release them alive. Hence, for this reason, the Holy Prophet ﷺ refused to release the captives until they returned. When the Quraysh came to free their captives, the Holy Prophet ﷺ refused to return them until both of them, Aisad bin Abi Uqas and Utbah, returned. He said, When my pen safely reach Medina, I will release yours. Therefore, when they both reached Medina, the Holy Prophet ﷺ released both captives for a ransom. However, from among these two captives, one individual was so deeply impressed by the high moral qualities of the Holy Prophet ﷺ and the truth of the Islamic teachings during his stay in Medina that even after his release, he refused to return and join the servants of the Holy Prophet ﷺ. He was eventually martyred at Bede Maona. His name was Hakam bin Kisan. If they were converted to Islam through force and oppression, then they would not have accepted Islam in this manner. Regarding Abu Huzaifa, it is also said that on the day of the Battle of Badr, he marched ahead to fight against his own father. His father was not a Muslim and had come with the non-believers. However, the Holy Prophet ﷺ stopped him and said that someone else should fight against his father instead. Subsequently, his father, cousin and nephew were all killed during the Battle of Badr. However, Hazrat Huzaifa demonstrated with great patience and whilst remaining content with the will of God Almighty. He expressed his gratitude to him for the help he granted in favor of the Holy Prophet ﷺ. That is the victory of the Battle of Badr. In another tradition in relation to this incident has been narrated by Ibn Abbas. He states, On the day of Badr, the Holy Prophet ﷺ said, Whoever of you comes up against Abbas, do not kill him, because he has come for battle out of compulsion. So just hold him prisoner, but do not kill him. When this news reached Hazrat Abu Huzaifa, he did not say it directly before the Holy Prophet ﷺ, but said to someone with him, Are we to spare Abbas and yet we expected to kill our own fathers, brothers and relatives? What is this matter? If confronted, I swear to God, I will surely attack him. When the Holy Prophet ﷺ heard of this, he said, O Abu Hafs, Will someone attack the face of the uncle of the Messenger of Allah Hazrat Umar states that this was the first instance that the Holy Prophet granted him the title Abu Hafs. Hazrat Umar responded, O Messenger of Allah, allow me to sever his head with my sword. I swear by God that the person who uttered this is a hypocrite. Hazrat Abu Huzaifa used to say, that the Holy Prophet ﷺ forbade Umar to do so. However, I did not remain in peace due to what I had stated. He must have realized that it was wrong to make such a comment. He stated, I shall always remain fearful due to the evil consequences of this unless I attain martyrdom. Meaning dying for the sake of Islam would assure protection from the evil ramifications of his comment. 
the narrator states, hence he attained martyrdom at the battle of Yamama. He said something in a state of emotion, but remained fearful his entire life until the day of his martyrdom. Hazrat Aisha narrates, The Prophet of Allah commanded that the bodies of the idolaters should be thrown into a pit, and it was carried out as commanded. The Holy Prophet stood by them and addressing them stated, O dwellers of the pit, do you see the promise made by your Lord, i.e. the idols, to be true? Surely, I find the promise of my Lord to be true. If one was to infer Allah the Almighty from this, then it meant punishment for the disbelievers. The Holy Prophet ﷺ said, Allah Almighty had promised me that I will punish them and they will not be victorious over you. The companions asked, O Prophet of Allah, are you addressing those who have expired? The Holy Prophet stated, They have certainly realized that your Lord's promise with you was true. When they were being thrown into the pit as per the command of the Holy Prophet there were signs of disapproval on Hazrat Abu Zaifa's face because his father was amongst them as well. The Holy Prophet asked him, O Abu Zaifa, by God, it appears you dislike this treatment towards your father. Hazrat Abu Huzaifa responded, O Messenger of Allah, I swear by God that I have no doubts about Allah and His Messenger But my father was forbearing, truthful and a person of wise judgment. Whatever he considered being correct, he firmly believed in it. He did not harbour evil intentions. And I wished for Allah to guide him towards Islam before his demise. When I realised that this would no longer be possible and witnessed his end, it made me sorrowful. When the Holy Prophet ﷺ heard this, he offered a prayer in his favour. Hazrat Abu Huzaifa was able to participate in all the battles alongside the Holy Prophet and he was martyred at the age of 53 or 54 in the Battle of Yamama during the Caliphate of Hazrat Abu Bakr Siddiq. Now I will mention about a long-standing servant and noble member of the Jamaat who passed away a few days ago. His name was Professor Saud Ahmed Khan Sahib Dehlvi. He passed away on 21st of January as per the will of God. Surely to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. His father, Hazrat Muhammad Hassan Ahsan Delvi, was a companion of the Promised Messiah. Similarly, his paternal grandfather, Hazrat Mahmud Hassan Khan Sahib, a teacher in Batiala, was also a companion of the Promised Messiah. The Promised Messiah listed his name amongst the names of the 313 companions at number 301, stating, Molvi Mahmud Hassan Khan Sahib, a teacher serving in Patiala. 
In his exquisite book, Siraj Munir, the Promised Messiah listed his name in the list of those who offered chanda for the hospitality and food for guests by writing Mawli Mahmood Hassan Khan Sahib Patiala. Professor Saud Khan Sahib's father, Hazrat Muhammad Hassan Sahib Hassan Delvi, had the opportunity to travel to Qadian when he was approximately 10 or 12 years old and witnessed firsthand the great sign of the revealed sermon. Professor Saud Khan Sahib devoted his life for the Ahmadiyya community in 1945. He obtained a BA Honours in Persian from Aligarh in 1955 while mentioning about him and his brothers during a Friday sermon. Hazrat Muslim Radilahonho stated, I believe that Master Muhammad Hassan Ahsan Sahib has displayed a model which is praiseworthy. He was an ordinary teacher and a poor man. He would starve himself in order to educate his children. Upon graduation, he devoted four out of his seven sons for the service of the Ahmadiyya community. All four of them are currently serving the faith, and almost all of them are serving with a sincerity which is a spirit of life devotion. He then continues by saying, If these children were not life devotees of the Ahmadiyya community, then perhaps they would have kept the name of their father alive for twenty years and would have stated, our father was an excellent person. However, when this Friday sermon of mine is published, hundreds of thousands of Ahmadis will remember the name of Muhammad Hassan Ahsan and will praise him. They will say, look how resolute of an Ahmadi he was, for he sent his children to obtain higher education, even though he was poor himself, then offered all of them for the service of Ahmadiyya community. That is, he devoted them all. Moreover, those children proved to be pious as they happily accepted their father's sacrifice and supported his decision of devoting them for the sake of the Ahmadiyya community. Between June 1946 and October 1949, Saud Khan Saib taught in Talimul Islam High School in Qadian. From October 1949, he spent a few months teaching English in Jamia Ahmadiyya. In 1950, Hazrat Khalifa Masih II sent him to Ghana in West Africa to render services to his faith. He served as the first vice-principal of the Ahmadiyya Secondary School in Ghana. Hence, on 30th of April 1950, he departed from Karachi and reached Kumasi on 30th of June. That is to say that it took two months, the months of May and June, to complete his journey. Nowadays we can arrive in five or six hours. On 1st of July, he began teaching in the Ahmadiyya Secondary School. With regards to why his journey took so long, his nephew, Irfan Khan Sahib, writes, After his first appointment, Saud Sahib departed from Rabwa to Ghana and only reached Kumasi after three extremely difficult and arduous months. It was approximately two months. In those days, one would have to board various ships in order to reach their destination. They would travel by boat, not aeroplanes. Therefore, he left Karachi to get to Aden. He bought a ticket costing 160 rupees, which did not come with any meals, and in this way he reached Ghana from Aden, not only by boat, but by other modes of transport such as buses and trucks. He then had to sell his trunk and other belongings in order to buy a 55-pound plane ticket to Nigeria and secured all his personal items in a cloth. The mission house in Nigeria then bought him a bus ticket to Ghana. 
In order to reach Nigeria, he sold his possessions to travel some of the distance by plane. He then took a bus from Nigeria to Ghana. His name is at the top of the list in Tariqe Ahmadiyyat among the eight missionaries sent to East Africa, West Africa and Holland in 1950. The first thing written is Saud Khan Sahib departed Lahore on 25th of 1329 after Hijri to Ghana. He returned to Pakistan in 1958 as per instructions of Hazrat Muslim Audrey and completed his MA in history in the Punjab University. He completed his MA in history afterwards. His father, Muhammad Hassan Ahsan Delvi Sahib, passed away in August 1955, whilst Saud Sahib was in Ghana. In 1961, he was reappointed to serve in Ghana, where he was again enabled to render great services to his faith. During his tour of Europe, Hazrat Khalifatun Nasi III approved of a sitting to be held in Masjid Mubarak Rabwa after every Maghrib prayer, in which there would be a 15-minute lecture on issues relating to moral training. This program began on 7th of July and it drew much interest as it was a scholarly lecture. Saud Saib was also among the scholars who delivered speeches in this program. On the occasion of Jalsa Salana, arrangements were made for translation of the speeches and Saul Saib had the honour of translating the address of Hazrat Khalid Musir III into English. And he was blessed with this opportunity until the last Jalsa held in Rabwa. Among the students of Professor Saud Khan Dehlvi was Abdul Wahab Adam Sahib, B.K. Adu Sahib, who also stayed there. After returning to Pakistan in 1968, Professor Saud Khan Sahib Dehlvi was given the responsibility by Hazrat Khalifatunasi III Rahimullah of teaching in Talimul Islam College, which began in 1969. Hazrat Khalifatunasi IV Rahimullah appointed him as an English teacher for one year in Jami Ahmadiyya. Whilst he served as a professor in Jami Ahmadiyya, he was still teaching in Talimul Islam College. His duty in Jami Ahmadiyya started on 2nd of March 1987 and he served for one year. Regarding Professor Saud Khan Sahib Dehlvi, his brother Masood Khan Dehlvi Sahib, who was the former editor of Al-Fazl newspaper and passed away a few years ago, would often say, My brother Saud Ahmad is a mobile library. He had vast knowledge and was highly educated. His daughter, Rashida Sahiba, writes, My father was an extremely forbearing and humble man and a learned scholar. He was very devoted and was regular in his worship and his tahajjud prayers. He would take great care of guests. What she has written is absolutely correct. His nephew, Nafis Ahmed Atik Sahib, who is a missionary, writes, He was an incredibly humble and pious individual who had great trust in God Almighty. He was a very righteous and modest human being. 
His devotion and passion for service to faith are an example for all life devotees. He also writes, He once told me that clothes and other commodities should be used according to one's need. It does not behove a life devotee to follow fashion and lavishness. Modesty was an outstanding quality of his. I.K. Ilyasi Sahib, a Ghanaian student of Saud Sahib, writes, Between 1950 and 1955, Saud Sahib was the very first assistant headmaster or night principal of Talimul Islam Secondary School in Kumasi. And prior to this, S.P. Ahmed Sahib was the headmaster. Saud Sahib was an extremely hard-working and wonderful teacher of the English language, English history and European history and I was among the ones whom he taught. He then writes, In terms of English grammar, especially sentence analysis, I have not seen anyone like him. He played a major role in improving my language skills. Moshir Ayah Sahib, the current principal of Jamia Ahmadiyya senior section in Rabwa, writes, Professor Saud Khan Sahib was a very humble, respected man and a scholar. I too was a student when he taught in Jami Ahmadiyya. Until his final year there, he would always start his class on time. He would teach till the end of the class period. If the students would ever try to engage him in conversation and not study, rather than rebuking them harshly or telling them off, Saud Sahib would overlook it in the politest manner and continue teaching. He further writes, I noticed that he had tremendous respect for the students who had devoted their lives, and if he ever had to be strict and tell someone off, he would always do so whilst keeping their self-respect and dignity in mind. Then Mubashya Sahib writes, When MTA had newly been launched and a range of programs were being recorded, Saud Khan Sahib held programs on the topic of Siyutun Nabi, Despite his old age, he would prepare the entire program with great effort and allocate questions to us, having handwritten them all in advance. He further writes, At times, if ever the atmosphere became a little tense whilst preparing for the program and each person would insist in doing it their own way, however, he was so gentle and filled with such extreme humility that he would never express any anger on his face. In fact, if ever someone said something a little harsh, it would seem as if it didn't even enter his ear, and he would gently smile and continue with the recording of the program from where it had stopped. Upon the demise of Professor Saud Khan Sahib, his neighbor, Fazal Ilahi Malik Sahib, expressed his sentiments in a very emotional manner and said that it's very rare to find such neighbors. He had a very simple nature and was a scholarly individual. He is survived by one daughter and two sons. One of his sons, Saad Saud Sahib, is serving as a local president of a Jamaat in the UK. May God Almighty elevate the station of the deceased. As I mentioned earlier, his qualities and attributes were in actuality far greater than what has been mentioned. 
He had an extraordinary love for Khilafat and showed great obedience. May God Almighty also enable his children and future progeny to always remain attached with Khilafat and the Jamaat. May he continue to elevate his status. After the Friday prayers, I shall lead his funeral prayer in absentia. <coughs> Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah,